it's about one in four or one in five people in the United States suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. I was born in 1980. If you went back to that year, there was no such thing as irritable bowel syndrome. So to imagine that we have gone from something that we can't even describe to now one in four or one in five people have this, that's a lot. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast. Evanston, Illinois, Pretoria, South Africa, Marvel, Colorado. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 40 of season 5, number 339 overall. IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Is it possible to reverse it, get rid of it, stop all of those uncomfortable, painful, and even embarrassing symptoms altogether? Well, that is what we will be finding out today. We are going to be welcoming board-certified gastroenterologist and author of the best-selling cookbook, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, back to the exam room live. And we're not just stopping with IBS either. We're going to take your gut health to the next level no matter what challenge you might be facing. On the docket today, acid reflux, cooking Brussels sprouts to reduce bloating, Artificial sweeteners and gastrointestinal upset. Is there a connection there? Also, we'll be talking about food allergies and one more about IBS. Are there certain healthy whole foods that can trigger a bout of it? That's what we're going to be finding out over the next 45 minutes as we raise our gut health to the next level with the pharaoh of fiber himself, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. IBS, my friend. Uh, how many people in the world suffer from IBS? Uh, we think it's about one in four or one in five people in the United States suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. Now, this is a very high number when you consider the fact that if you went back to the, like, I was born in 1980. If you went back to that year, there there was no term for irritable bowel syndrome. There was no such thing as irritable bowel syndrome. So to imagine that we have gone from something that we can't even describe to now one in four or one in five people have this, that's a lot. It's a huge number. And yeah. the question then becomes is, is this a condition that you have to suffer through your entire life? Or like Ariel is asking, can you reverse IBS? So I think, so I'm of the belief that you can reverse IBS, but let me um, sort of describe the nuance for a moment because I don't want to be too flippant or sound like I'm being um, hyperbolic with my claims. So IBS is a condition that is the result of damage or injury to the gut microbiome. And um, with that in mind, if we can repair and restore the gut microbiome, then we can elevate our health in a direction that allows us to actually rise above the irritable bowel syndrome and you know potentially get ourselves to a place where we no longer have symptoms at all. Now, this is though, to me, this is different than a cure. This is different than a cure because the problem is that if you uh, you know, elevate your gut microbiome, but then you you forget about it, you stop paying attention to it, you would most likely slide right back down into the irritable bowel syndrome space. So whereas a cure, a cure is like, hey, look, I had a urinary tract infection. I took an antibiotic. It cured the, it cured the urinary tract infection, and it's not, it's not coming back. It's gone, right? There's no such thing as a cure for irritable bowel syndrome. There's no way for you to kick it to the curb in a way where it's like, hey, no matter what you do, it's gone. Instead, where, we're, where we can get ourselves to is by making the appropriate choices to elevate the health within our gut microbiome, which, which by the way, this is what my new book is about. It's about you know helping you and empowering you with the right information to make those choices, to make those choices that you can uh, have a healthier gut. When we do that, we that's how we ultimately reduce and diminish the symptoms from irritable bowel syndrome and ultimately get ourselves to a place where the symptoms are no longer there. And if that's what we've done and we maintain it in that place, Chuck, if you never have symptoms again from irritable bowel syndrome, that's effectively a cure. We just can't call it that. Absolutely. Uh, Mia is wondering, though, follow up to that, whether IBS is strictly genetically driven or is this more of an effect of the diet that a lot of people are eating? 
well, it's not strictly genetically driven, but our gut microbiome is, of course, inherited to some degree from our from our family members, particularly from our mother. And there is a genetic element to our gut microbiome. So if the if the place that you know, if the part of your body that ultimately determines whether or not you have irritable bowel syndrome is uh, the gut microbiome, then what are the inputs that matter in terms of determining what your gut microbiome looks like? And that would include genetics and, you know, um, your mother, whether or not you're born by C-section or vaginal delivery, breastfeeding, but then like antibiotic exposure during our lifetime. And what is the diet that you've been consuming? And do you exercise? And do you spend time outdoors? And do you have something in your life that's stressing you out and and causing a negative impact on your gut. You know, these are, we have to look at this bigger picture and say, what are the factors that can affect these gut microbes? Because ultimately that's what determines whether or not there's the manifestation of irritable bowel or not. All right, so now let's talk about uh, foods that may trigger it, foods that may help it. In the book, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, you talk a lot about biome broth. Would something like that be nurturing to somebody who has IBS? Yes, biome broth, biome broth was designed in, with the intent of being nurturing to someone who has irritable bowel syndrome. And the reason uh, that we created it, Chuck, is that there's this hype surrounding bone broth. Yet there's not a single study, not even one stinky study, not even a study of two people or one people, like one person. Like, show me a study that says that, that bone broth actually is beneficial to gut health. It doesn't exist. I do acknowledge that and I think we all would agree that a nice, warm, electrolyte-rich liquid, it can be very nourishing. It can feel very gentle on the gut. There is something to be said for that. There's no denying that. But does the bone make a difference? I would argue no. There's no There's no proof that it does. In fact, if anything, the proof would say that we're actually causing harm because it allows things like heavy metals to get into the broth. Instead, what I would argue is that we should create a broth that's based on prebiotics. If we want it to have benefits for the gut, Let's make a prebiotic broth that includes polyphenols and fiber. That's what biome broth is. It's designed to lift and elevate your gut health. All right. Well, let's take a question from Carl. This is a pretty interesting one. Carl is wondering whether there are any whole foods, which would be categorized certainly as healthy, that might trigger IBS in people. Sure, definitely. So uh, irritable bowel syndrome is, again, the manifestation of damage or injury to your gut microbiome. You, when you consume dietary, uh, when you consume whole food plant-based, all plants contain fiber. Fiber is actually beneficial to your gut microbes, but you have to understand you don't personally have the enzymes necessary to break down and process fiber. You don't have them as a human. Your gut microbes do. Breaking down and processing fiber is entirely possible they can actually break it down and release short-chain fatty acids, which are the most healing, most anti-inflammatory compounds that exist. But the problem is that we are 100% reliant on these microbes to process and digest our fiber. When you have irritable bowel syndrome, it's because your gut microbes are in a position of being damaged, being injured. They're not at full strength and not fully capable of doing things like breaking down fiber for you. So the point is that the problem isn't the food. In fact, this is the food that you need to heal and empower your gut. The problem is that you have a damaged gut. And because it's in a state of impairment, you may struggle to process and digest those foods. So you need to reduce the amount of fiber that you consume at once to allow your gut to be able to keep up. And when you do this, your gut will actually rise to the challenge. It will become stronger and you'll become more capable and you'll actually be healing your irritable bowel syndrome. But there's a process. There is such a thing as too much fiber. And we talked a little bit about that on uh, Instagram Live earlier today. Uh, you, you and I were on the Physicians Committee's uh, IG account. And what is the upper limit for fiber for us that uh, we say, well, that may be a little bit too much than we can handle? That's very, that's very individually determined, Chuck. It depends on what you've been eating, right? So the average American in the United States is consuming about 17 grams of fiber per day. So if that person who's consuming 17 grams of fiber per day suddenly goes up to 45 grams of fiber per day, like, like abruptly goes to 45 grams of fiber per day, I expect them to struggle. I expect that. I do want them to get to 45 grams of fiber per day, but the process is not abrupt. The process is to go from 17 up to 25. 
from 25 to 30, from 30 to 35, and so on until you're up to 45. On the flip side, if a person's at 45 grams of fiber per day and they consume 100, I expect that person to struggle too. But if they go from 45 up to 50, 55, 60, we keep rolling up, they can get to 100. Our ancestors consumed 100 grams of fiber per day, Chuck. So our gut is fully capable of adapting and growing strong and fortifying and doing this for us. Our gut is capable of doing this, but you have to allow it to practice. Practice makes efficiency. Practice makes it strong. You know, I would think guys such as you and me and a lot of the exam roomies who are tuned in right now probably are are in the upper reaches of 40 to 50, maybe even a little bit more grams of fiber per day. How long do you think it would take for us seasoned fiber eaters, our fiber-fueled faithful, if you will, to ramp up to 100 milligrams or 100 grams of fiber per day? How long are we looking at there? Um, let's pretend we're starting at 40 if you're at 40 and you're tolerating that well, your gut already is adapted to that. And that means that you have fortified and strengthened your gut already to some degree. And if you're going to go to, let's pretend that we're going up to a hundred as you're proposing Chuck in my mind, that's a process that probably is going to take us two or three months. That's, that's where I see that. There you go. Don't do it overnight, boys and girls. That is not a challenge worth taking. Uh, right. Exam well, room. Yeah, go ahead. Real quick, real quick. So Flip side, you're talking about starting off as a person who's consuming 40 grams of fiber per day. But let's 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 put this let's turn this on its head. Actually, what if you're a person who has ulcerative colitis? Okay, the person who has ulcerative colitis has deep damage to their gut microbiome. I want them to eat these foods, but if that person eats 25 grams of fiber per day, they're probably in pain from that food. Again, the problem is not the food. The problem is the ability of the gut microbiome to process the food. And so, so what do we do there? Well, again, don't push towards 45 too hard. We have to actually take this and we have to rehab the gut and go super low and slow. And that's what I often say, start low, go slow when you're going with the fiber. So if you have ulcerative colitis, we might need to start off with like a gentle 15 grams of fiber per day, properly packaged, you know, meaning like soups and smoothies and things that are pre-digested, very easy on the gut. And then we go from 15 to 20, 25 and 30 and going in this person from 10 or 15 grams of fiber per day up to 30, that in itself may be a three, four, five, six month process. It's because of the starting point. So it really, you have to take into account the starting point. And that's, I think that's what I'm trying to say is like, if you have damage to your gut because you have irritable bowel syndrome, or ulcerative colitis, you have to reduce the amount. Let's not even talk about 45 grams of fiber in that person. Let's talk about 20 grams of fiber. That's where we need to begin. All right. Now let's do that exam room roll call. All right. So low and slow, man, that is good advice. Cause, uh, real quick before we do that, I remember I went, uh, cold tofu as they say around these parts, um, overnight, my wife and I did, man. And that was, a. It was an interesting couple of weeks until everything got settled again, man. It was a real interesting couple of weeks. I will tell you that. Um, roll call time. Uh, Plant Fit Meg, some colorful names today. Uh, Diana Banana is here. Tofu Tuesday. Gail is with us. And Cheryl Fox from Minneapolis is joining us live for the first time. Glad you're here, Cheryl. That is awesome. Uh, Dr. B, question from Khan at 12.08. Very interesting one. He says, uh, I generally don't like vegetables, but I love sprouts and fresh grown microgreens. Do nice. you think they can replace vegetables or should I still be eating some? They usually are vegetables. Um, I mean, or they're legumes. It's basically coming from one of two places, right? So it's still a vegetable. Broccoli sprouts are still broccoli. It's just a different form or different um, uh, different level of maturity in terms of the life cycle of the broccoli. And as a result of that, it is slightly dif different from a nutritional perspective, but still a vegetable. Um, you know, let's let's say this. I believe in variety and abundance. I want people to work towards a diet that includes as many different types of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes as possible. It's not just fruits and vegetables. It's all of them. So I want, to, I want people to work towards that diet. Start with what works for you. Start with what makes you happy. This is not about overnight what has to happen. This is about taking one step in the right direction. And as you start to move in this direction by first focusing on what you really enjoy and what and what makes you what makes you happy, you will be relishing these moments. 
you will be feeling more energized and you will be elevating your health. And this is going to motivate you to double, triple, and quadruple down on these ideas that you've discovered that are changing your life. And next thing you know, you're going to be eating things that you didn't think you're going to be eating. That's how it rolls. That's pretty cool, man. Uh, Lynn, also in the chat room right now, says that uh, they are watching for the first time live as well. That is awesome. I love it when we get new exam roomies who are able to join us for the the live show. I just feel like, Dr. B, the energy with the live show is just, it's so much different than listening to it on the podcast, which is great. But there's just something about having that interactivity that just takes it to that next level that I always like to talk about, man. It's so cool. I love it. I love it when we're like in the chat room here and everyone is having a good time. Like, thank you guys. This is so fun to be with you today. I love it. The exam roomies, man. Doesn't get any better than that. Um, Sylvester is looking for help with acid reflux. Wants to know whether the fiber-fueled cookbook has recipes specifically for people who have reflux issues. The Firefield Cookbook is designed for people that have digestive health issues. It's not, um, if you're if you're asking, are you going to find an acid reflux diet in the book? I'm not talking about acid reflux in the book, and I don't want to uh, disappoint you. So if you don't feel that that's a fit, then I, I don't blame you. One possibility would be to put a request in with your library and grab a copy of it from the library and flip through and check it out there. And if you like it, you can always add it to your kitchen. You know, you don't have to feel obligated to invest the money up front. Um, that being said, when we talk about acid reflux and we're talking about a natural approach to fixing and correcting acid reflux, Chuck, it's quite fascinating because what they discovered uh, in uh, a series of studies is that fiber is good for acid reflux. There was one study where people took a fiber supplement, improved their acid reflux. There was another study where people, people ate a plant predominant Mediterranean diet, and it was as good as medication in terms of fixing their reflux. Well, guess what you'll find in this book? This is the, all of the recipes are entirely plant-based and very, very similar to what you would discover in a Mediterranean diet with a little bit of a spin. The spin is that we're not trying to be Mediterranean specifically, but instead we're trying to be about gut health. So each of the recipes that you'll find in my new book are really designed with gut health in mind, meaning that there are specific levers that we're pulling that are intended to take your gut health to a new level. So it's not just plant-based recipes. It's not just food. This is food designed to improve your gut health. There you go. And that gut health can connect to so many other wonderful, uh, healthy parts of, of just existing, man. I mean, it's amazing that that whole gut and overall health connection. We were talking about that also a little bit uh, earlier in the day. I think somebody had asked you the question of, you know, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered about how gut health can control other aspects of health in a person's life? And I think your your answer was somewhere on the line of like, it's it's almost limitless or something like that. I am not, so there may be limits to what we can do in terms of our gut health, but you have to understand though, Chuck, not to get super complicated here, but um, I feel that when people enter into the gut health conversation, the uh, 100 level course is to think about gut health in terms of probiotics, meaning the bacteria. And if you work with me, I want to take you up to first the 200 level course where we talk about prebiotics and what we feed the bacteria, because that is critical. And ultimately, we're going to graduate at the 300 level course together, where it's both the prebiotics and the probiotics are producing chemicals called postbiotics. And that's what ultimately matters. So here's the key regardless of what your gut health is made of, regardless of what its limitations may be, I am completely convinced that through optimization, through diet and lifestyle, we are capable of absolutely amazing things. And that to me, I'm not aware of any limit. Let's take a question from Colleen. Maybe she was watching uh, when we did that Instagram live from my kitchen Monday night, we were making the uh, sweet potato black bean burritos. And uh, you you asked me about when I was still overweight, you know, how was I feeling, uh, you know, in a number of areas. And one of the things you kind of caught me off guard about, you asked, well, how was I feeling mentally? So Colleen yep. at 1218 is wondering what the research says about gut microbiome and mental health. Is there a connection there? There is. There is a connection between the gut microbiome and mental health. Um, <clears throat> so we, we have known for years 
that uh, diet affects our mood. And there's actually a, play, uh, a place in Australia uh, led by Professor Felice Jacka called the Food and Mood Center. And this is what they study. And it's interesting because in randomized controlled trials, when you give people a high fiber diet, you will discover improvements in their mood. This could be anxiety. This could be depression. And you see improvements. Well, we know that food affects microbes. So now the new frontier is taking a look under the hood at the gut microbiome. And what we're discovering is that in people who have mood disorders, there clearly is a change or a difference in terms of the gut microbiome. So there's, Chuck, we have a long way to go. I'm actually working on some research with Zoe, uh, a company that I'm involved with where I'm their US medical director. I'm actually involved in some clinical research right now where we're looking at this, these questions, food, microbes, mood, and how do these three things, how do they intertwine and connect it? It's very exciting. Uh, here's something very exciting as well. Yusi is uh, joining us live for the first time. Lots of first timers here today. First time exam really roomies. Cool. Yeah, yeah, man, that's amazing. Uh, CLC in the chat room, JL is here as well. Let's take a question from Veggie Minded Apparel, talking generalities. Um, they're asking specifically about someone in their life who has severe IBS, but wants to eat a whole food plant-based diet. But they say this person can't tolerate beans very well. And they also are skeptical about eating soy. So Veggie Minded Apparel's question is, could this person eventually work up to eating enough beans to meet their protein? needs as well. So what can you do here? If, if a person can't tolerate beans, there's still the question of protein requirements. They've got IBS. Generally speaking, if somebody's in this position, what would you recommend? Well, so first of all, um, I think that the protein concerns, this is a big fear, but it is a fear that is not actually validated in the sense that where is the evidence that people who are eating plant-based are actually protein deficient? It does not exist. In fact, when they study this, they discover that people who are eating a plant-based diet are actually getting 70% more protein than what their body actually needs. So we really don't need to worry so much about the protein, but I do want people to be able to consume legumes. You know, the, the diversity of plants is how we determine the health of our gut microbiome. I don't want people to be eliminating entire categories of food. So how do we approach this? The, the answer is like, this is literally why I wrote my book, Chuck. And I wrote this book, The Fiberfield Cookbook, because I felt as a gastroenterologist that our current approach to food intolerances like this was completely inadequate. That if you go to your doctor, your doctor doesn't have answers for you. Frankly, they're not helpful. And that if you go to someone who promises you answers, the problem is that what they're selling you is something that they're like literally selling you, but there's no proof that it works. Um, you could spend hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars on, on these things that like it just creates confusion and you're not really sure what to even do with the information that you receive. So I feel that people deserve better and it's a bit of a challenge to take on a nuanced topic like food intolerances, but that's what I chose to do with the cookbook. And I created a protocol called the growth strategy, G-R-O-W-T-H. And if you follow the growth strategy letter by letter, you will start at the beginning and you will be this person that you're describing, Chuck, and you will emerge on the other side. My expectation is that this person has reintroduced legumes and they are in the process of restoring their ability to actually consume these foods. And ultimately, given time, given persistence, that they will emerge and be fully capable of eating legumes. So that is my expectation. And that is what the book does. It's hard for me in a short answer to give you everything that you would find in an 11 chapter book. But the point is that in the 11 chapter book, chapter by chapter, I'm basically guiding you through the process that you would take to actually address this issue and this question. And you know, in this 11 chapter book, uh, Tofu Tuesday has just paid what I think is one of the more remarkable comments I've seen about it so far. She said that the book is basically written in your voice. It's like you're talking directly to the reader. I thought that right. that is masterful. You've matched matched the tone. I'm, was that something you were going for? It's just the way I write. Um, yeah, you know, and it's been the way for a very long time. Like I, I, when I was a chief medical resident at Northwestern, I would send emails to like a large group of people, and many times there were emails intended to like try to lift people and build morale, 
right? Because these are people who are basically getting their butts kicked in the hospital every day. And you're trying to encourage them and invigorate them and, 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 and show them the great work that they're doing and how meaningful it is. And so when I would write these emails, Chuck, I actually had a lot of people. It's so interesting. I never would have thought, you know, this was uh, 2009. I, I never would have thought that I would be an author one day. But I would have people that would comment on the emails. And they would say, we love the way you write. It sounds just like you. There's the sense of humor in there. And so it's kind of funny because these are very similar to some of the comments that I receive about my books when people read them. is like they hear me. And that's I think that's a good thing because uh, that's that's what I'm hoping is going to happen. That's a great thing. I mean, you've got a warm and charming personality. If you didn't, I'd say maybe it wasn't such a good thing. But in this case, I think that it's fantastic. Um, let's get back on the nutrition track. Take a question from Amy. This is one that comes up from time to time on the show. And I'm sure Amy is certainly far from the only person wondering this today. Why would Brussels sprouts not cause bloating nearly as badly when they're cooked a little bit longer? Well, when we, so when we cook our food, we transform our food. And um, there's actually a, a guy at, at the University of California, San Francisco, Peter Turnbaugh, who showed that you could take literally the exact same food, cook it, and have a different effect on the gut microbiome, which is quite fascinating to consider. So raw Brussels versus cooked Brussels are not going to have the same effect on the gut microbiome diversity of cooking techniques. But when we cook our food, part of what we're doing is we're processing and, and pre-digesting in a way the fiber, we're softening it. And so when you cook them longer, you're helping to really soften those Brussels, like they're not hard and crunchy so much anymore, they're now getting soft. And that's how you know that you've actually made an impact on the, on the form of the fiber and that makes it easier for you to process. Uh, Rebecca says that she made the shawarma and rainbow salad from the books. That is really tasty. So good stuff there. Um, Dr. B, uh, we have a couple of people who are wondering about the connection between lectin and gut health. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I definitely can. I just want to comment real quick on um, Diana. Diana said, Dr. B, you might want to think about politics because people can relate to you. Okay, I am <laughs> never going into politics. I can assure you I have zero interest in that because I don't want to do something where people routinely stab me in the throat. And politics is crazy these days. What, who would go into politics, honestly, Chuck? I don't even know. I mean, I not realize that you guy. have not said it, but I, I have no interest in that. I'd rather be at home with my family and happy. So anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> just I felt that that was a funny thing. Um, okay, all right. So nonetheless, you'd get my vote, uh, but lectin and gut health, what do you got? Yeah. Lectins. All right. Lectins is a hyped up thing. It's, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Um, so lectins, first of all, if you actually go to PubMed, which is where you would go, if you actually were, um, being focused on what the clinical research says and you search for lectins, what you will discover is that lectins, most of the studies that will pop up will be about how wonderful lectins are for protecting us from cancer. Last time I checked, uh, the number two cause of death in America is cancer. Obviously, none of us want that. And if you look at lectin-rich foods like legumes or whole grains, you will discover that it's no coincidence that these foods actually reduce our likelihood of developing cancer in both cases. So... The problem is that people say lectins are bad for your gut health, and they're basing this on test tube studies. Okay. In the United States, the average American consumes six pounds of lectins, six, six pounds of legumes, six pounds of legumes. And we're saying that this is the cause of all of our issues. Well, our parents' generation they consumed eight pounds of legumes. Why weren't they having a problem? And um, currently we are consuming 30 pounds of cheese per year and 220 pounds of meat. And I don't know what the number on sugar is, but it's ridiculous. All right. And we're going to pretend that the problem is the legumes when clinical research says that, that uh, when you consume legumes, you reduce your risk of heart disease, reduce your risk of cancer, reduce your risk of other uh, diseases, inflammatory diseases, right? And yet all the blue zones, they're eating tons of legumes, way more than us. Why are they not having gut health issues? Here's the issue. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. The truth is that both legumes and whole grains 
are high in fiber and resistant starches and polyphenols. These are the three prebiotics. Prebiotic means that we need our gut microbes to process them. So when you consume legumes or whole grains, they have the most potential actually to be healthy for your gut. But the problem is that they also ask your gut to do the most work. And if you have a damaged gut, then you may find that your damaged gut is struggling to keep up with the work that you are asking it to do. This is why people struggle with legumes and whole grains. And if we, going back to what we were talking about a moment ago, if you take that person and you work through the growth strategy step by step, you emerge on the other side and you are consuming these foods, not just in moderation, you're consuming them without restriction. And now you actually get to be this person who taps into the benefits of reducing your exposure to these chronic diseases that, that we are trying to avoid. Man, you know, you mentioned sugar and, and how much a person eats. I can't remember the exact number either, but I remember a, a couple of years ago, I was on the local ABC station here in Washington, D.C., doing a segment on added sugar and, and calories and how that can affect your diet negatively. And uh, the weight was equivalent to more than a cinder block. So if you picture like going to your local hardware store, picking up a cinder block that's for sale there, that's how much added sugar you're eating every, well, the average American is eating every year, a little bit more than that actually. And think wow. about Dr. B, just how heavy a cinder block is. That's a lot of sugar, man. That's an awful lot of sugar. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it's crazy, it's disturbing, and it needs to change. And how do we accomplish that? We accomplish that by replacing the foods that, that have this excessive burden of you know refined sugar, and we replace it with real food. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, legumes. And now this is like what nutrition is about. The, 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 the core of nutrition is substitutions. What are you replacing with what? This is how you level up. Well, Faith is trying to replace uh, regular sugar with zero-calorie sweetener, specifically the little pink packets. Uh, Faith wants to know, can using artificial sweeteners cause gastro, inter uh, gastro issues? Definitely. In fact, if a person comes to my office with gas and bloating or diarrhea, the first question I'm going to ask them is, do you, do you consume dairy products and are you using artificial sweeteners? And in there, I might ask them, are you chewing gum? Because by the way, gum contains artificial sweeteners. So that's the first question I'll ask them. And if the answer is, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, drinking dairy or consuming dairy, or yeah, I'm, uh, I put Splenda into my coffee every day. Okay, let's remove those things. And tell me how you feel. And Chuck, you would be shocked at how many people are better by simply doing that. What is it about them that would cause all of that bloating? Is it like maybe their sugar alcohol and that causes some issue or what's going on there? Well, with the artificial sweeteners, it's the sugar alcohols and sugar alcohols are a FODMAP. FODMAPs are not necessarily inherently bad, but in this case, when it's a artificial sugar alcohol, there's no advantages to you. There's really not any advantage to you. And so um, that sugar alcohol still comes into contact with the gut microbiome and can be potentially fermented or can actually draw water into the colon, which gives you diarrhea. So the point being that, you know, the absence of calories doesn't mean that it doesn't have other effects on your body. Let's take a question from Wendy. Change of pace here at 1233. Wendy says uh, she has Sjogren's disease. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, my mom suffers from that as well. I know that that's not fun. Um, she says that my de uh, digestive tract is dry. Digestion is very slow. Will improving my gut microbiome improve the transit time and mucosal layer in my gut? Two things that are very big with Sjogren's disease. So that's a little bit inside baseball. I know you can only speak in generalities here, but let's talk about how the plant-based diet, getting a little more fiber in there might be able to help somebody who has it. So, you know, the issue is that Sjogren's is a um, complex medical condition where, you know, like, for example, you know this, Chuck, but the other uh, people here may not know this. Like Sjogren's, for example, they get dryness of the mouth because their salivary glands are not producing an adequate amount of saliva. So the issue with this is that there is no study that I've seen in terms of Sjogren's and gut health 
So it's hard for me to be very specific, given that the context of the question has to involve, you know, involves Sjogren's. It's hard for me to be very specific other than to speculate. But what we do know is this, without question, our gut microbiome is connected to our gut motility. We hear about uh, serotonin. 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Well, it's not because our gut is like trying to be happy. It's because in the gut, serotonin is a motility agent. It helps to keep the gut in alignment and keep things moving. So the point from my perspective is that whether you have Sjogren's or frankly, regardless of who you are and what medical issues you do or do not face, even if you're completely healthy, our gut microbiome is connected to so much that matters in terms of human health. In this case, we're talking about motility, gut motility, but it also includes other elements of digestion. It also includes our immune system, our metabolism, our hormones, our mood, our brain health, our energy levels. This is a precious commodity. This precious commodity, we're taking a huge risk if we neglect it. We need to be intentional. We need to pay attention to it. We need to lift it up, make it stronger. Because when we do that, we become stronger humans. That's what it's about. Uh, let's go back to the uh, sweeteners comment here. I kind of lit up the chat room a little bit. Um, xylitol is one that's popped up a couple of times. Steven at 1239 is wondering whether xylitol falls into that same category as we were talking about with the pink packet sweeteners and other artificial sweeteners. Xylitol, xylitol is one of the artificial sweeteners that could potentially cause gas, bloating, and diarrhea for sure. That's interesting, man, because I've heard a number of physicians, clinicians, and even my own dentist say, hey, xylitol is where it's at. That should be your jam. Um, it's well, funny how so the signals still get crossed. crossed. Well, so this is this is the nuance because the, the issue, Chuck, is that um, something, there are things that exist, Chuck, that you will discover they're not categorically good or categorically bad. You will discover that in some cases, they're good for one thing and they're not good for another thing. And so with xylitol, this is a artificial sweetener that has been shown to be good for oral health, right? But does that, does that make it impossible for xylitol to cause gas bloating and digestive distress? Of course not. We're talking about separate issues. So if you consume it for your oral health, like as xylitol-based chewing gum, and you don't have digestive health issues, cool. You can roll, you can keep doing that, right? But on the flip side, what I'm saying is if you have digestive health issues, gas, bloating, and diarrhea in particular, and you are routinely uh, consuming xylitol, including as chewing gum, take a break for two weeks and tell me what happens. And there is a chance that it will improve. And if it does not, it does not. But if it does, then you just found your solution and you don't need to go and spend thousands of dollars on getting colonoscopies. Delia checking in all the way from South Africa. She says she ordered the fiber fueled cookbook. Can't wait for it to arrive. How cool is that having the global impact, man? That's a nice little feather in your cap. Yeah, it is nice. I mean, look, uh, you know, I think that as a, um, as a medical doctor, the the mission, the, the the dream is to use your education to improve people's lives and help them to heal, right? Like that's what you hope to do on the other side of all this education. And I've done that in a clinic, but now I'm in this new phase where I'm trying to do this on mass scale. I'm trying to impact as many lives as possible. I'm trying to maximize the impact that I can make in that individual life. And it's kind of a cool thing to imagine that you could spend, you know, basically a year and a half of your life hunkering down, growing behind the scenes, doing something that you guys don't even know that I'm doing, right? Like no one knows that this is happening and then reveal it and release it and it could change people's lives. Like this to me is the reason that you write books. You write books because they have the potential to impact people's lives. And that to me is what really excites me. All right, two more, Mr. Exciting. Uh, let's get one from Kabir here. Interesting one uh, from 1243. Kabir's watching on YouTube today. Uh, we talked about how fiber feeds the good gut bugs, but Kabir is wondering whether it also feeds the bad bugs that you're trying to get out of your system. Uh, there's no evidence that fiber feeds the bad bugs that we're trying to get out of our system. There's zero evidence of that. Uh, in fact, Every fiber study that I've ever seen has demonstrated benefit in terms of feeding the good gut bugs. 
All right. Final question today goes to Tim, and it's a carryover from last week. We had a really nice in-depth discussion about histamines and food. And Tim is wondering if he's bloated all the time, how will he know if that's a histamine intolerance or if there's something else going on? So you have to go through the process. You know, if you were to go through the growth strategy, you would go step by step. And the first thing, the first thing wouldn't be the the histamine intolerance. There would be other things that you would look at. Um, as described in the new book, the number one cause of gas and bloating that I come across is constipation. And in many cases, people don't even realize that they're constipated. And so this is part of what I'm trying to accomplish is bring awareness to this. At the end of the day, we ultimately want to figure out and identify exactly what is causing our issue. Because if we do that, that allows us to have better results. So how will I know if it's a histamine intolerance? Well, uh, the answer ultimately will be that if you implement what's in chapter five of the new book, you will consume a low histamine diet. And in consuming a low histamine diet, if you notice that your gas and bloating completely go away, in addition to other symptoms potentially improving, then you have just you have just provided evidence that this could potentially be a histamine intolerance that's driving this. All right. If we did not get to your question today in the doctor's mailbag, have no fear. We will save it and get to it on an upcoming episode. Uh, Dr. B, here's what I'm going to do, man. I'm going to tell people, all the exam roomies who are tuned in today, tell your friends, tell your family members, tell your coworkers, go out and get a copy of the fiber-fueled cookbook. And don't be shy about it either. I mean, there's so much great information in there that literally everybody can learn something, grow from something, become healthier because they're digesting this information. And oh, by the way, it happens to be absolutely delicious. Just like, again, the sweet potato black bean burritos that we made Monday night that were just absolutely all planet delicious. I mean, I just, I can't say enough good things about this book on a personal level and on a professional level. So many books cross my desk, Dr. B. Yours has a way of taking the science, making it very digestible, very exciting, very hopeful, and something that really anybody who picks up a copy can really just kind of rally behind and it puts a smile on their face. And then ultimately, because we're talking about gut health and their belly as well. Yeah, I feel this as a unique offering. You know, it's interesting, Chuck, a lot of people, their impression when they grab the book, they say, this is not a cookbook. And, um, well, it, I understand what you mean. I mean, it, there are 125 recipes and there's full color photography, but there's also 11 chapters. And those 11 chapters describe my approach to healing people's guts. And it's step by step. And it's, you know, it's basically a breakdown of the growth strategy. We could have called it the fiber field protocol, but then people would say, it's not a protocol. It's a cookbook. There's 125 recipes with full color photography, right? So <laughs> the, um, it's, it, I don't know what genre you would call it. But what I do know is this, this is me showing up, creating solutions, creating pathways to better digestive health. I'm using a plant-based diet to accomplish it, but that is not my only tool. And there are also some unique ways that I approach a plant-based diet that I don't think you really hear from other places. So this is where I feel my contribution is. I'm functioning as a gastroenterologist. I'm not just trying to write a pro-plant book. I'm actually trying to improve people's life and trying to improve their digestive health. And this is the sincere, honest way that I think it's done best. And there's, uh, there are more than 400 references in my cookbook. And you, if you want to know whether or not I'm speaking the truth, my references, you don't have to buy my book. You can get them right now. Go to my website. You will download them instantly. And you can literally, I've made it as easy as I can possibly make it. You can click a link and it pulls up the reference for you. Read through some of these studies, see what you think, decide whether you believe in what I'm saying. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm here with sincere, sin sincerity and honesty, trying to use my education, my experience to try to improve people's lives. And I do feel that this book makes a major contribution because I don't know that there's a book out there exactly like this. It's one of a kind, which why I, I would argue that it deserves its own genre. So the next time I walk into a bookstore, I want to see a section on delicious health and it would just have 
the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. Dr. B, man, congratulations on all of your success. I'm so happy for you. I'm so grateful that you spent so much time with us over the last couple of weeks here as this book has hit store shelves. I know that uh, you've had so many commitments and it just means the world to me and to the exam roomies that you've carved out a little bit of time for us. I appreciate it, Chuck. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for being here in the active chat room. It's really cool and it's always fun to see. And I, th I, I love the engagement and the, uh, the personal interactions that we have. There is a link right now to pick up your copy of the Fiber Fueled Cookbook in the episode notes. And if you haven't already done it, now is really the time to make sure that you get your hands on a copy. And look, if you're on the fence about eating a plant-based diet, you're checking out the show for the first time, maybe you have someone in your life who's like, eh, I could do this whole vegan thing, but I'm worried about, wait for it, not eating cheese. You think that you can't live without cheese. How often have you heard that? Well, good news here, my friend, because eating this way doesn't mean that you have to give up cheese. There's a healthier way to get it. Right there in the book is a recipe for homemade tofu feta that will knock your socks off. Just flip over to page 84. Make this recipe with eight simple ingredients that is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you don't have to be a trained chef to do this. All it is is eight simple ingredients to make this incredible homemade tofu feta. And also, I want to follow up to what it was we were talking about on the podcast last week, histamine restriction. Introduced you to the idea for the first time, perhaps, that histamines go beyond just seasonal allergies and those Claritin tabs that you see in the pharmacy. So if histamines might be causing you some trouble, there's also a phenomenal guide for histamine restriction in the book, as well as a list of the medicines that are most likely to be associated with histamine intolerance. Plus, there's a guide for foods to avoid while you're figuring all of this out. Is this a problem for you? Well, there are close to 40 foods that you're going to want to take out of your diet, all of which are driven by peer-reviewed credible science. And you can find that list on page 133. It also happens to be part of Dr. B's growth strategy as well. And I also want to thank Dr. B for hopping on Instagram Live recently. We did a pretty fun segment over on my account, at Chuck Carroll WLC, called it Cooking in Really Big Pants. So I was wearing an old pair of my 66 inch waist jeans. I needed suspenders just to keep those things up. My goodness gracious. Uh, and what we did was because I was a Taco Bell junkie, we actually made a recipe for black bean and sweet potato burritos. And so what we were doing was as I'm making those burritos, he's talking about how the gut microbiome shifts dramatically when there is extreme weight loss. In a lot of ways, we're talking about shifts that you probably may not have even thought of. I mean, really interesting and fun science. And the cool thing though, why we chose making the burrito was because we wanted to demonstrate just like what we were talking about with the cheese is that when you eat this way, when you adopt a whole food plant-based diet, it doesn't mean that you have to give up the foods that you've been enjoying your entire life. There are healthier versions of these foods available that are so good. So the relationship changes, but it's not a total breakup with food either. Really cool stuff. So if you get an opportunity, you want to check out that recipe and laugh. Cooking in really big pants, kind of fun, at Chuck Carroll WLC on Instagram. And before we wrap up today, some really big news in the fight against diabetes. Have you seen this? Have you seen the headlines for this? There was a major statement published in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. A consensus of experts. And the consensus that they reached? That nutritional interventions, better known as diets, including plant-based diets, can help send type 2 diabetes into remission. Now, you might be saying, well, we already knew that. What's the big headline there? Well, it's that the experts who signed off on this statements are very big hitters in the health world. 
We're talking about the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, and that happens to be supported by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and it doesn't get much bigger than that. And this statement also co-sponsored by the Endocrine Society. That is a trifecta of greatness in the health world. And so what their statement concluded was that using diet as a primary type of intervention for type 2 diabetes is most effective when emphasizing whole plant-based foods while limiting consumption of meat and other animal products. The conclusion also stated that not only can a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet help reverse diabetes initially, but it can be very powerful in keeping diabetes in remission long-term. But on the flip side, these same experts conclude that very low-carbohydrate diets can be associated with significant adverse events and even cardiovascular risks. And for those reasons, they say that low-carb diets are inadvisable for long-term remission for diabetes. And if you happen to be struggling with diabetes or there is someone in your life who is, we have a ton of resources to help right now on our website, pcrm.org diabetes. And if you are looking for a good plant-based doctor or dietitian to help get your health back on track, whether you're struggling with diabetes or any other chronic illness, the staff at the Barnard Medical Center could be just what you're looking for. Telemedicine visits are available, so book yours today. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 for a full list of states where services are available. Schedule your appointment today, 202-527-7500 or log on to barnardmedical.org. And yes, insurance is accepted. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Will Bolsowitz for being here and taking our gut health IQs to the next level. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.